0: Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront. And joining me today is Forefront chairman, Rich Chrisman. Hello. Also joining us today is an amazing woman who loves good literature, is raising two wonderful children, gardens, and bakes the best sourdough in the South farthing, who also happens to be my wife, Megan Mancini. Welcome to the show.
1: Hello. Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Today, we are talking about the new streaming series from Amazon Prime entitled The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. The season one finale episode just came out this past Friday, so it's a perfect time to take a look back at the series and talk about what we thought of it. So this episode is not late, nor is it early. It arrives precisely when we meant it to. Mm. Now, <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, is a figure that looms large over pretty much any conversation about the intersection of Christianity and language and myth-making and is basically a patron saint of many of today's Christian artists. Never so, heard of So <laughs> a, a film or a TV adaptation of his work is pretty much catnip for us here on Forefront 360. Um, it's actually been hard to wait this long to do an episode about it. Hopefully it is worth the wait. So... Some of you who are listening to this episode will have seen the show, and some will have not seen it. And so I'd like to make sure we give all of you who are listening a very helpful discussion. So, to that end, I'm going to steal an idea from the Ringerverse podcast and divide this episode into three rings three rings for our listeners under the sky. The first ring is going to be spoiler free for the show, which is to say, it's going to be our general reactions. And you should feel comfortable listening to this first part if you haven't yet seen the show at all. The second ring is going to be the meat of the episode. Yes, meat is back on the menu. And it will be an in-depth discussion of the show. That will include spoilers for all of season one. So only listen to the second ring if you've seen the show. The third ring will be our speculation ring and we'll include our thoughts on where the show might go from here, possibly informed by information from Tolkien's Second Age of Middle Earth. Uh, That could be important because it might spoil future events of the show. Uh, This is going to be a five-season show reportedly. So if you really don't want to know where we're headed or where we might be headed, um, you just don't listen to that third ring. We'll give you some warnings along the way. Okay, so with that, Let's dive into ring one, the spoiler-free ring of general reactions.
2: Which of the three rings is this one?
0: I am uh, adamant that I do not know. Okay. That's a, that's a reference. Um, I didn't get that one. It's there's a, one of them is a ring of adamant. Oh, oh that's sorry. good. Yeah. Before I ask you for your general reactions to season one of the Rings of Power, let me first ask you about expectations. So uh, let's start with you, Rich. What Tolkien books have you read? Did you have any familiarity with this whole Second Age time frame? What were your expectations going into the Rings of Power? Uh, What did you you think it would be? What did you hope it would be?
2: I have kind of worn as a badge of honor in this forefront community um and inter- intersection of Christian arts and and uh authentic faith world over the past you know ever since I started at Grove City College actually probably um I have not been just absolutely obsessed with JRR Tolkien like <laughs> every other person I encountered in this interaction and like I um I didn't grow up around Tolkien people that I knew growing up, like weren't really like hadn't read the books. I of course knew about it because I was young when the Peter Jackson movies were coming out. Um, when fellowship of the ring came out, I wanted to see it with my friends and my parents said it was far too inappropriate for me at the time. So I did not, um, or too many orcs. Yeah. So I wasn't able to see that. Um, I think by the time Two Towers came out, I had lost interest because my parents had said no. And then um, I actually, the first like Lord of the Rings thing that I ever saw, uh, actually, I just thought of an asterisk to that. But the first Lord of the Rings thing I ever really encountered was um, I saw Return of the King without seeing the other two. Oh my goodness. Um, when I was probably like 14 or 15. Oh no. Um, so, and then I went back and watched uh, the other two, and I think I watched all three with, like, my friends when I was, in, I think, in 10th grade in high school, and, like, uh, and I really enjoyed them. Like, I've, I've always been, like, a fantasy guy, so, like, I certainly enjoyed them, um, but I didn't have that, like, organic, like, lifelong, uh, you know, connection. Like, I, yeah. I grew up with Narnia and Star Wars, so, like, I have a deep familiarity with those worlds. But just having not grown grown up with Middle Earth, um, I just didn't have that connection. That yeah. being said, I just remembered when I asked Trist, I did remember that when I was a young kid, I did read The Hobbit, um, so I was like familiar with The Hobbit from a young age. But I didn't really, I didn't really associate The Hobbit completely with Lord of the Rings. Like I thought of that as like a book that I read, and you know, it was I didn't really put them together. And
0: neither did Tolkien when he wrote. Right, it. right.
2: So, um, so that being said, uh, all all that to say, like I am not a huge Tolkien fan. Now, since I, in my, like, adult life in this world of art and faith, as I joked about already, like, it's impossible to avoid uh, Tolkien as a figure. So I have, even before Rings of Power, I had grown a great respect for him as a person and as a writer and as a man of faith and all these things. So I really, like, I, I moved from being indifferent to Tolkien to really respecting him as a person, but still kind of holding his material at arm's length. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons why I held it at arm's length was because it felt so so well-loved already by so many people that I was like, there are other series and, and things that I can devote myself to. Yeah. yeah, so I enjoyed Middle Earth, not a massive fan. So that being said, when they announced that Rings of Power was happening, I, I believe that I met the news with a big eye roll. Because I immediately assumed that Amazon was capitalizing on however they acquired the rights to, to make this. I assumed it was going to be an absolute insult to the original material and the Peter Jackson movies. I, I pictured it as some sort of serialized spinoff on Game of Thrones. So I was like, okay, Amazon is making a play to a a an existing uh property, and they're gonna make try to make their own Game of Thrones, and it's gonna fail. And like I had, I was really kind of disappointed to hear that it was even happening at first. Mm. And then um, as it got closer, I was definitely intrigued by like some stills and and whatnot, and I was impressed at how it looked. Um, Yeah, but I was still like. Uh, This is like, like I didn't allow myself to put my heart on the line, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Don't give me hope. Exactly. Exactly. And, and if anything, like I had, I really like, if I was a betting man, I certainly would have bet that it would be disappointing rather than, than not. And, um, so to, to stop myself from overtelling the story, the, the, the end of the story of my approach is that I, uh have been very pleasantly surprised in numerous different areas that I'm sure we'll get into in this episode. I do not think the show is perfect by any means, but I do think that I can honestly say that Rings of Power has completely, I wouldn't even say rekindled, because I don't even know how kindled it ever was. Like, Rings of Power has kindled my interest Mm. in the world of Tolkien. Um, I have since purchased... The Silmarillion, I haven't cracked nice. into it yet because I've been doing other stuff. But, like, I'm very interested in diving into that. Um, yeah, right. And um, I re-watched um, Fellowship of the Ring and Two Towers recently um, and felt like I was watching them with new eyes, you know, yeah. because I actually care now, you know what <laughs> I mean? But so I'm saying that, like, so I think a great, um, like, a big praise that i can put forth just an, an authentic praise i can put forth is um as someone who's very much casually familiar with this world i am now
0: very interested in this world because of the show beautiful that's great as gandalf would say interest is kindled yes <laughs> Upon the lighting of the beacons. Uh, Megan, what was your familiarity with uh, Tolkien's source material? What were your expectations going into the show? Were you excited?
1: So, my like, I watched Fellowship in, I don't know, except The Hobbit. Okay. In middle school, high school, and was terrified of the orcs and was like, this is too violent. It's not for me. Thank you. And then this guy in college wanted me to watch all three of the movies, and I ended up marrying him. So, it all worked out. But I must um, meet
0: this man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we had like a, a Lord of the Rings, I don't know, movie marathon, watched one each weekend for a few weekends in a row. Um, Nate like explaining to me what was going on. I really like fell in love with the story. And like watching Sam carry Frodo up Mount Doom like almost had me in tears. So really just loved, loved the stories. Um, I listened to the audiobooks, I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago now. And then yeah, Nate okay. and I read through the books together five five years ago, something like that. Yeah. So I haven't read the books on my own. I've read part of The Silmarillion, but I do have some familiarity. Love the stories. Expectations for going into the show. I was cautiously hopeful at first, a little concerned because Amazon seems to, how do I put it, get a little sketchy <laughs> with some of their shows. And they do. I...
2: I feel like they have a history of being rather exploitative with properties. Like they, I mean, they they, they take a lot of things and just run with them. So yeah. that makes sense that you had that thought. I just
1: like can't stand watching stuff that's sexually inappropriate. Like I just, I don't want to see it. I don't want anything to do with it. So I was like a little concerned they were just going to turn it into like elf romances in a bad way. But as Nate was t- telling me a little bit about what he expected from, you know, what he'd seen And learned about as the show was coming. I was like cautiously hopeful. But watching it, I can say it was really, 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 really good. I absolutely loved it. I think even if you don't have a ton of background, you could still really enjoy it. If you do know more about Tolkien, it's still great. And it is genuinely high quality, good, clean fun. And we need more of that.
0: Beautiful. So... Personally, I've read or listened to Lord of the Rings books a few times, and the Peter Jackson movies were a huge part of my childhood. Uh, I think they they captured my imagination in the way that, like, uh, Rich, you know, Narnia or Star Wars did for sure. you. It was, if I think about, like, the fundamental story of my childhood, it, it was Lord of the Rings. Like, mm-hmm. I love those other stories, but Lord of the Rings just became my favorite. Um, so it means a lot to me. I oh. did read some additional works like Children of Huron, uh, Baron and Luthian, things like that. More recently, I read The Silmarillion. I had a really hard time getting into it previously, but I forced myself to read it and I actually got the audiobook so I could listen to it, which is super helpful. Um, so I was able to listen to it before the show came out, and that was uh, fantastic. And I also reread the appendices of Return of the King, <laughs> I mean, which is fundamental to this adaptation. In the
2: in the room we're sitting in, there's a Lord of the Rings thing on all four walls. Is so, there really? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, or in all four directions, I should say. Yeah, i um, so.
1: I'm also realizing, looking at the walls, listeners probably don't know this, but Nate and I took a trip to New Zealand to visit <laughs> Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. filming locations. You mean
0: Middle Earth? Yes, Middle yeah, Earth. Yeah, yes, yeah, definitely. We we traveled to Middle Earth. Um, and I think this, this is actually a good time to bring up the, the uh, question of rights. I know, interestingly, Amazon doesn't have the rights to all of Tolkien's works. They don't even have the rights to the Silmarillion. What they actually have the rights to is the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. And that's it which is fascinating because they're making a a story about the second age. And so they did, they had all these pitches after they got those rights about what would the show be about? And people pitched, you know, young Aragorn stories and young Gandalf stories and all this kind of stuff. And then the showrunners uh, who ended up getting it, Patrick McKay and JD Payne brought this idea of a second age story. And they basically said, Hey, like with the extensive appendices in the return of the King, plus all of the information we have throughout the Lord of the Rings about what happened previously, we could make a show based on this. So this entire show is based on essentially the appendices in Return of the King, um, specifically the one entitled The Rings of Power and also um, The Fall of Numenor. And so that's really interesting. And it's, it's very instructive, I think, as we talk about the things that may be similar or different from what Tolkien wrote in other places. Cause they simply don't have the rights to a lot of material and reportedly, uh, if they want to bring in something from the Silmarillion, that's not referenced in Lord of the Rings. They have to literally go to the Tolkien estate and ask them specifically mm-hmm. and say, Hey, could we put this in or could we do this and actually get explicit permission? And they have done that in a few certain cases. Um, So here are just some quotes from from, uh, the showrunners. They say, We have the rights solely to the Fellowship of the Ring, the Two Towers, the Return of the King, the Appendices, and the Hobbit. And that is it. We do not have the rights to the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, the History of Middle Earth, or any of those other books. We worked in conjunction with world-renowned Tolkien scholars and the Tolkien Estate to make sure that the ways we connected the dots were Tolkienian and gelled with the experts in the estate's understanding of the material. And another quote. There's a version of everything we need for the second age in the books we have the rights to. As long as we're painting within those lines and not egregiously contradicting something we don't have the rights to, there's a lot of leeway and room to dramatize and tell some of the best stories that Tolkien ever came up with. So I guess my expectations going in, uh, knowing this were it was going to be a lot of uh, making stuff up. It was going to be basically connecting the dots. They had some key plot points and they were going to make up everything in between. Um, but they were going to do so with a deep love for Tolkien. And that's that's what I think whenever the showrunners speak, you can just tell that they have a real understanding of the material. And so that's been an interesting thing for me is I've found places in the show that I, I disagree with, mis- things that they did that I don't think were good choices, I I try to think about it from that lens and think, okay, these are people who really care about the lore, and yet they made these choices. They must have a reason. And so I've tried to kind of understand what those reasons are. Um, But overall, uh, I was excited about it. Uh, To me, having another Tolkien adaptation is a joy. And particularly having a quote-unquote TV series because it just gives us time. It gives us time. We get to hang out with the characters and hang out with the worlds in a way that we haven't before. So general thoughts. Um, Rich and Megan, you both shared uh, your, your kind of overall take, which is that you liked it. But um, other thoughts on season one of the Rings of Power, again, avoiding any spoilers. Uh, I would just ask, Did you think it was a good show in general? How did it compare to your expectations? And we also have an audience question from Keith who asks, do you think the show has a Tolkien feel? Mm. So, yeah, since you liked it, what were some of the things you liked and did you think it has a Tolkien feel?
2: If I could jump in on Keith's question, the reason, the thing that I find the most remarkable about the show, and again, I did... I mean, take this as you will, because I did say that I am probably the least versed in Tolkien on this episode, but I think that I was very impressed and it very much subverted my expectation um, that the show feels not only visually and musically and, and in the dialogue and all that, it feels, let's call that physically, right? It is physically, it feels very much like Tolkien, but while I've seen some arguments against this, I would claim that it feels very much ideologically in line with Tolkien. Um, i agree with that. The, and I, have, I was very surprised and continue to be impressed that what critics have, have called the deep Catholicity of Tolkien's work is apparent even in an Amazon show in 2022. Yeah. And it doesn't seem at all like the creators are... Avoiding or shying away from some of the like very deep moral structures Mm -hmm. uh, that and, and religious structures that exist within Tolkien's world. And that just very much shocked and impressed me. Yeah.
1: It really does not feel like they're trying to shy away from like Judeo Christian tradition or import modern progressive values or anything like that.
2: Yeah. Which. And, and I don't want to go down this road because that's not what we're here to talk about, but I have... The road goes ever on. Yeah, but n- multiple people that I know have l- literally, uh, like, actively chosen, or, or, you know, decided that they will not even try to watch Rings of Power because they believe from images that they've seen that it it has become a progressive version of Lord of the Rings. And and I and I am very like surprised that people are unwilling to even consider the possibility that that might not be so.
1: Yeah. So one thing I think I would say for images, it's a lot more racially diverse than the Lord of the Rings movies, but I think that's fantastic. Yeah, that's great. It's it's really well done. I think the relationships in the show are done really, really well. The characters are done really well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of different relationship plot lines. There's an elf-dwarf relationship, and uh, there's a romantic elf-human relationship. Mm-hmm. Classic um, Tolkien. Yeah, and then there's some, I guess, elf-elven friendships, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And they're all really well done, very believable. And re- there's just a joy to watch.
2: Well, another thing that's yeah. so unique about this show, and I read a lot of books and i watch a decent amount of of visual content and it is very rare i think today to come across something that displays uh deep and meaningful platonic relationships Mm -hmm. like i feel like in today's culture it's either a romantic relationship or there is no depth or love shown between the characters Mm -hmm. unless maybe maybe if they're family members but yeah. that's pretty much it.
1: That's actually a great point. There are some really solid co-ed, I don't know, friendships. Mm-hmm. Like the relationship between Elendil and Queen Mariel. Sure. And that's in some ways sort of a, a general and um, monarch relationship. But mm-hmm. that's a very deep relationship that's not sexual at all.
2: Or or even just like the the friendship between um, Durin and Elrond yeah. is... is a a big one a deep uh and obviously loving friendship which is something that you just don't Mm -hmm. see uh, in media today
1: i think that's one of my favorite things about the original lord of the rings trilogy is that relationship and friendship between frodo and sam yeah i don't know if listeners know this but we named our son sam samuel (laughs) but after you know samwise
0: yeah and um, yeah, there's also Nori and Poppy uh, the Harfoots. Um, so oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, a, lo- a lot of great friendships, and that—that that is Boy, something. And Nori and the Stranger as well. Sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. and th- that's something that's so Tolkien. I mean, it, as I was thinking about the things the show did well and the ways that it felt like Tolkien, that really is something that was so core to what he loved and what he loved to demonstrate in his works was deep friendship, and as he would say, fellowship. Um, such a core part of, of all of his works, but particularly the Lord of the Rings. And that's something that I think about. Th- th- again, this show, they have the rights to the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. This show feels like it's something birthed out of the ethos of the Lord of the Rings, even more so, I think, than something like The Silmarillion. Like, it doesn't really feel like it's always oh, it's just like this history book on screen, but it feels like it's, they're trying to bring all of those qualities from The Lord of the Rings, all of those, those things that you loved, and bring them into the story of the Second Age. And one of those is that deep friendship. Mm-hmm. A few other things I'll mention. Rich, you touched on this briefly, but it's a beautiful show, right? Visually stunning. Um, they spent a lot of money on this show, that's for sure. But money isn't everything. And I think um, this turned out incredibly well. I think it's one of the most beautiful shows on TV, on streaming. Um, the production design is incredible. Again, worthy of the level set by the Peter Jackson films. The, the look is different. I think if you think about the Peter Jackson films, everything is more like kind of realistic and faded um, which is to, which is to say like that is appropriate for the third age sure. that you have all of these cultures that have been kind of broken down and, and they were
2: once greater than they are now. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Things like Gondor and khazad are now kind of broken down and there's a lot of kind of greys like, you know, Tolkien greys and realism. Mm-hmm. Um, this show is brighter. Brighter and more mm-hmm. colorful. Um, there's a lot more color on screen, a lot more shine. Things but the stungeon is gorgeous.
1: Do you really think? <laughs> I mean, there's more color in the elves and in Numenor, but I'm not sure outside
0: of Definitely that. Definitely
2: in doom there was as well. Way, oh, I way forgot way about that. Than, but well, I mean, obviously more than in Moria. but, well, but Moria even, was dead. Even more so than Erebor in the Hobbit films. Yeah.
0: I think if I think when you compare them if you look at like screen grabs of the Lord of the Rings films it's almost kind of shocking like how muted the colors are um especially in like the two towers but um this show is much it is just much brighter graded uh overall and the cultures, again kind of at the height right yeah Kazadoom and linden and and Numenor um but yeah very very beautiful I think too just a, an, another thing that I thought was really well done is the maps particularly in the early episodes um they were they used maps to help yeah, you we kind, kind of, of understand. moved away from
2: the maps so in the second half
0: but yeah. yeah interesting yeah, that was cool that and was that's kind of yeah. one of my criticisms like i wish they'd continued that because i mm-hmm. thought that was so cool um and it's, it's not that you need to show a map before every scene but just uh Tolkien was so into maps and kind of where things are, and the it's very Tolkienian yeah, to do that. The universe is so much based on where things are in relation to each other and the time it takes to get from one place to another, and this idea of journeying. Um, so the use of maps, I think, was really was really great in those first couple episodes in particular. Uh, before
2: we move on from too far from this question and Keith's question, we actually had a uh, a hot take sent in from uh, Forefront friend and listener Robbie Davis nice um, hi, Robbie. yeah uh, hi Robbie so he he said that um, aside from some of the time compression which changes some of the historical events in Tolkien's world he said that he felt the series did a beautiful job capturing quote the feel of Tolkien this is Robbie talking I don't just mean the visuals uh, the gil line hope is never mere even when it is meager when all other senses sleep the eye of hope is the first to awaken last to shut rings of the same stuff as Haldir's quote in Fellowship. The world is indeed full of peril, and in it there are many dark places, but still there is much that is fair. Though in all lands love is now mingled with grief, it grows perhaps the greater. Mm. The Tolkienian light uh, that pervades the show and brings the history of Middle-earth, which is often seen as heady and dense, to, perhaps to a general public, is shown here in an accessible way. He also mentions that a clear delineation between good and evil, despite characters obviously wrestling within grays, mm-hmm. is very Tolkienian and is very visible here.
0: Mm-hmm. Right,
2: and the the music is just incredible. Yes, I I am. McCreary. I am always. I, I'm not a musician, so this is kind of a funny quality of mine. But I'm like the music to things can often make or break something yes. for me, and I will find myself like really drawn to good. Uh, movie or TV show scores. Yeah. and I um, I'm just really like the music in this.
0: Yeah, it's really excellent and it's so necessary. Um, I, I think that the, the music is just so important to a Tolkien adaptation, partly because it is fantasy, right? And you're bringing to life these worlds that we don't know about. And the music is such a key part of setting the tone and helping us to feel present there and excited about returning there. Um, so I agree, I love the music. Um, we could talk for a long time about that.
1: I would definitely agree. I haven't sat down and listened to the albums, but Nate's been playing them <laughs> like throughout the house. <laughs> Usually, like every Friday, right before the episodes come out, and sometimes it's just random other points. But there and, was, and in the car, and it, yes. <laughs> well, and what I was thinking of that one song, Elrond's theme, that you played in the car, yeah, it's this like beautiful song, so but funny. also very like haunting and sad. And oh, so? Bron-
0: Bronwyn and a Deer was the one where you're like, This is sad,
1: but Elrond's was a little bit like that too, it was also, yeah, and that kind of like beautiful but sad at first. My first reaction was like that doesn't sound right. Like, you know, the Howard Shore stuff is a lot of, you know, a little bit more hopeful sounding. But then I thought, no, that makes so much sense because effectively this has to be a tragedy. Mm -hmm. You know, not that there aren't good points in it, but it has to be a tragedy. And so it really, the music really conveys that in a really beautiful way.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Major props to, to Bear McCreary for the music.
2: Um, so sort of, um, in contrast to some of the things we've we've been hearing, uh, I have another take that was sent in from a, a friend and fan, uh, poet Ryan Diaz. Hey, Ryan. So Ryan shared, and I'll speak as him here, reading off his comment, at moments, the show felt soulless. For all the brilliant visuals and good casting, the show seemed to be missing something. We can't forget that part of what made Tolkien brilliant was the worldview that shaped his literature. His belief in goodness, grace, providence and evil undergird his storytelling. Without his worldview, you get what the fantasy genre is filled with, to- with the- what the fantasy genre is filled with, Tolkien imitators who can't figure out what made him so great. For instance, Aragorn and Faramir are compelling characters not because they have quote touched the dark or appeal to the modern anti-hero tropes. They are compelling because they are good men, valiant and kind. They don't touch the dark. They aren't driven by revenge. They love the sword for what it defends. Characters like these are only possible if you believe in truth and goodness and beauty. So I thought that was an interesting take. Uh, We we won't really dive too much into that in the first ring, like some of the things he's Mm -hmm. referencing there. But um, he also uh, references the fact that uh, he says, we can't forget that Tolkien originally wanted to publish the Silmarillion. So this, uh, you know, beginning of time to the second age work uh directly after the hobbit and his editors wisely rejected that which in turn gave way to lord of the rings Mm -hmm. which means what made those things so great is that this larger backstory sat behind the scenes and was referenced but unexplained this makes the world feel as if it is lived in with a real sense of history in place what makes for a compelling world building doesn't always make for great storytelling our obsession with spin-offs and our desire to dissect stories has produced some terrible works of art. The Silmarillion doesn't need to be a story in its own right. It never was a story. It is a background to the true story. A story of an unlikely hero summoned to answer Destiny's call, working to save a world in decline. So, wow.
0: Pretty good. Uh, pretty hot take. That's a hot take, Ryan. Because basically he's like, Tolkien thought this was a story worth publishing. But he was wrong. <laughs> so, so Wait, wait. I don't... I get
1: that he, like, disagrees... Or, I don't know. He seems to think that the Silmarillion's value is more in how it supports Lord of the Rings. He than being
2: in, Ryan? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Than in its own value. But... So is he therefore basically saying that we shouldn't have a show about the Second Age because it's pointless?
2: No, I don't think so. I think, um, and Ryan, call in. You know that we got the hotline. No, I'm just kidding. But um, no, but I was saying that. Uh, no, I think that he. Uh, I think that what he's saying is that um, one of the reasons why the editors weren't weren't ready to publish the Silmarillion is because the Silmarillion, like Nate even mentioned earlier in this discussion, the Silmarillion is essentially a history of Middle yeah. Earth. And it doesn't read in the like an epic narrative, which the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit both do. Yeah. So um, but but again, like you also mentioned and my kind of response to you, Ryan, I love that analysis, but as well, this while uh this rings of power takes place very much adjacent to the Silmarillion, it's not a show of the Silmarillion either. So, um but I definitely see I'm I'm compelled uh by what you are sharing with the fact that the motivations and the things that make Aragorn and Faramir and and Samwise and these other characters what they are is perhaps not yet seen in all of the characters in Rings of Power. Mm-hmm. And and uh, while I wouldn't agree with you completely that the show lacks soul, I do ag- I see what you're saying with with um some of those characters maybe having more shallow and contemporary motives than than Tolkien was doing with his timeless motives.
1: Let Mm. me, if I could just add something. I think, Ryan, your point about touching the dark and being driven by revenge, I had not thought about the, I don't know, the danger that that quote could lead to morally. And I think it's a really good point. We'll have to see how they handle it. I think as far as the characters, one thing I think we need to remember, because Nate and I have gone back and forth about this, is that yes, some of the characters have weird motivations and seem immature, Galadriel being the most obvious, but this takes place before they're matured and before we know them in Lord of the Rings. If I look back on my own life, I was quite certainly an idiot 10 years ago, let alone if I lived for thousands of years. I'm sure I would have been even more of an idiot. So I think we need to give the characters a little bit of grace. And Nate's smirking at me.
2: Well, I was just going to say like by the time 10 years ago you were, you know, however old, but 10 years before Galadriel was still thousands of years old,
0: right? But but yeah. Yeah, but we, we've had many arguments. We've about had many this. arguments about <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: She yes, obviously she's I don't know what 6,000 years old or something. But we still need to allow that she's gonna mature and grow.
2: Of course, otherwise she's not an interesting character at all. Yeah.
1: Right. And so it's okay Dynamic. for someone who is nearly perfect later to be well, struggling now. To,
2: to jump on this too and, and then we can move on, but uh I, I've seen a lot of criticism of um I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Is it Morphid Clark? Morfid the, Clark, yeah. yeah. I've seen a lot of criticism out there saying that she is like a flat and emotionless actress. Oh and God. I'm like, and I like I'm not like a massive fan, you know, I'm not like the Galadriel stand over here, but I'm like, isn't that what Galadriel's supposed to be like? Like, like I've never seen Morfid Clark in any other role, but, like, anyone... Like, I keep seeing this criticism in, like, online where people are like, oh, my gosh, Galadriel is so flat. That's and a I'm dumb like, criticism. Yeah, and I'm like, she's an elf who's, she's like, stoic. very... Yeah, like, that's what... Like, haven't you seen her when she was played by Kate Blanchett? Not an emotional character at all. No, and
1: she does... She is actually very good. I mean, maybe she needs to get a little bit more variety in her stares, but she's really good at the, like... Super angry, super sad,
2: but also, like, aren't like, the stoic elves but crying? But also, aren't the elves like far above the 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 winds that toss mortal men? you know, like aren't mm-hmm. like the fact that like, like shouldn't the elves be portrayed as like extremely stoic and like not moved by like small petty things like like men are? You know, so, so it doesn't bother me. Yeah. yeah and I yeah, think. And Elrond is like that as well. I mean, like he like yeah. smiles more than Gladriel does, but the, but he's also, he's still very like graceful and slow to emote, mm-hmm. which, yeah. which is what makes such a brilliant contrast between him and Durin. Exactly. And we,
1: yeah. we need to remember that. I mean, actually the Elrond-Durin thing is a great example, but that expressing emotions is a cultural thing. How much we keep inside versus how much we show. I've been on a Jane Austen kick recently. And there was so much of like, you didn't mean what you say and you had to keep everything inside. And in Sense and Sensibility, the character who lets all her feelings out is like socially awkward and creates problems for other people. And so the elves are just different than the dwarves or the hobbits because they're all different cultures.
0: Yeah.
2: Oh, you know what? That just reminds me of one last praise that I want to throw on before we move to the next tier. If you haven't watched the show, a big praise that I have for it is the show creators, due to Tolkien's brilliance, have done a really excellent job creating distinct worlds for each of the like races and even within the races, like each of the peoples mm-hmm. of this, this space. And I just want to like highlight how impressive that is because... Like, I'm a big, as you, anyone who listens to this podcast knows, I'm a big Star Wars fan, right? Like, there's a lot of different worlds in Star Wars, right? Yeah. But Star Wars has kind of a, a, a rather singular aesthetic, like, throughout. Like, there's many different planets. Many of them are deserts for some reason. But, the <laughs> but like, there's, there's a very similar aesthetic in, like, the clothing, the music, you know, like, the things are... Uh, there's kind of a Star Wars vibe for the most part. Now, in this show... Um, similarly to in the Peter Jackson one, but maybe yeah. even more so because of what Nate said earlier, where we're spending more time than we ever have before with these people. Yeah. Each world—the world of the elves, the world of the dwarves in Khazad Dûm, the world of the high men of Numenor and the low men of the Southlands—and all these things mm-hmm. are completely distinct. Like the, um, yeah, the costuming is completely different. The setting is. Completely different. The architecture is different, and Bear McCreary's is that it McCreary, yeah, yeah. Bear McCreary's musical score is different in each setting, and I even noticed the uh, like when spending a lot of time with the music as well. Like, there are very cool cultural takes from our own human cultures. Like the Numenorian theme um, has kind of a uh, a Mediterranean kind of vibe to it, which makes sense, being that they're like right. men of the sea. And um, just yeah. very cool, yeah. So he I really Greece or something. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. It feels kind of kind of Hellenistic. So it's I don't know. I really enjoy it. Oh, and they wear like togas in Numenor <laughs> like that as well. But anyway,
0: yeah. And, and bear bear specifically said that that was a theme that he wanted to use instrumentation that you would not hear in, for example, the Lord of the Rings films, such that it would be entirely a culture that could simply disappear, Ooh. and you would never hear from it again.
1: I need to listen to these this music again more
2: focused so
0: So let's dive into ring number two so this is going to be specific reactions spoilers for the entire show So if you haven't seen the show yet, we'd recommend pause the episode, go watch the show or go finish the show and then come back and join us for some specific reactions. So here we are in ring two. All right. Welcome everybody who's seen the show. I'm going to talk a lot about themes as we go through. And I, I think that's something that's so important to me is, as a fan of Tolkien is like, to what extent did this show bring out the themes of Tolkien? And I mentioned the theme of friendship that it does really well. I think it brings out um, ambition and adventure. And I think that uh, in many ways it felt like Middle Earth to me. And I give it huge credit for that. Um, but there are themes that I feel like it did not bring forth to the extent that I would like. Themes that it didn't focus on that are very present in Tolkien's Second Age. And it is the Rings of Power show. Not a lot of rings and not a lot of power. Uh, (laughs) There's not not a ton of either of those things. Actually, the theme of power, I feel like, is such a present theme in Tolkien's Second Age. And in fact, Tolkien says in a letter to uh, Milton Waldman, who is an editor at the publishing house of Collins, he says, But at Eregion, great work began, and the elves came their nearest to falling to magic and machinery. With the aid of Sauron's lore, they made rings of power. Power is an ominous and sinister word in all these tales, except as applied to the gods. The chief power of all the rings alike was the prevention or slowing of decay. Change, viewed as a regrettable thing. The preservation of what is desired or loved or its semblance. This is more or less an elvish motive. But also, they enhanced the natural powers of a possessor, thus approaching magic, a motive easily corruptible into evil, a lust for domination.
1: I would agree with you that, like, that kind of description of power with the elvish rings isn't in there, but there is plenty of power. There are plenty, plenty, plenty of power dynamics in the show. Sure. They may not be super, like, no, super obvious, but it's everywhere. Like, you see power and leadership if you look at searching for leadership in the southlands galadriel is struggling with power against gilgad you see even elrond and durin there's lots and lots and lots of power dynamics and maybe i'm seeing this from my background as like a public school teacher
2: i, w- I wonder if that's different than the power that is being referred to in that quote though like as like i think of that as more like cosmic or like godlike power which is different than like Someone exercising authority over another person. Yeah, but th- those things combine. Yeah. I mean, those things obviously interweave.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, as we've seen again in the modern day, like looking at things through the lens of power is a way of looking at almost anything. So you can find power dynamics everywhere. Um, but I just think that as a theme, it was a theme that was sidelined in favor of other themes. And I, I recognize that, I think, as, a, as an intentional choice uh, uh, that the showrunners made. And I think that we'll see it more in future seasons. But I just think it's interesting. It's interesting because it's a theme that's literally in the title, but it's not kind of necessarily the fundamental idea of the show or the fundamental motivation of some of the main characters. But yet, it's kind of the central theme of what Tolkien describes in his second age. But I think this season we didn't really see that fundamentally in the same way. Uh, so that, that's kind of a tease as we, as we go further. I want to talk about some specific plot lines. Um, this is very much a show that was a tale of these, these multiple plot lines that we got to, we got to visit these characters um, one after another in different places, and then they would intersect, particularly near the end. So we had the Harfoots and the Stranger. We had Galadriel, Halbrand, and Numenor. We had the Southlands. We had the Elves and the Dwarves. So I want to ask you guys uh, what you thought specifically about each of these plot lines, things you liked, things you didn't like. Let's talk about the Harfoots and the Stranger. Let's not talk specifically about the Stranger's identity, but just about that plot line throughout the series. What did you guys think of it?
1: I thought it was fantastic. Like, the Harfoots are just so fun.
0: So
2: in the as the show started, I was I was least interested in the Harfoots at the beginning. Mm. Um, but I, I grew to really love them. I mean, as they're supposed to be, I think, you know? Yeah. Um, the more time you spend with them. They did a really good job with the fact that the Harfoots, in contrast to the elves and the dwarves and, and stuff, seem so simple. Um, which is the whole point but there's um they do a really good job communicating like a dignity to them as well i'm very uh i was very interested in the stranger plot line particularly once we found that he was some sort of sorcerer like mm-hmm. his his that in that like first scene i mean for not when he falls like that's something but in the yeah. first scene where he he like uh his voice begins to like echo and he like moves the the wind and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I was like, this is really interesting. And that really piqued my interest to like who and what is this, whether it was someone we knew from the story or not, you know, right. very cool.
1: I think the, the dynamics among the Harfoots are really, really strong. Yeah. Um, Nori and Poppy have a beautiful friendship. The relationship between Nori and her parents is really interesting too because yeah. Nori bends the rules a little bit and it's really cool to watch her parents are guiding her they're not overly strict they're not permissive but you know still trying to tell her the right thing to do but maintaining a sense of humor you know when she was out at the old farm getting blackberries and she wasn't supposed mm. to be and you know her parents were kind of like don't do that but saying it with a smirk it was just very cute and very sweet and i think yeah. i appreciate that at a whole new level as a parent now myself
2: They trusted her, and that was apparent.
1: Yeah, and it also it kind of like explores the idea of like when do you break with your normal social code or break the you know typical social rules, Mm -hmm. and when is that an okay thing to do? Yeah, you know, a lot of movies we see a lot of Disney movies, which I love, but it's often about breaking rules to find yourself. But this was about breaking the social code to serve somebody
0: else. Right. Yeah, to help somebody.
1: And that's when it should be broken.
0: That's that's beautiful. And that's that's an interesting a really interesting thing about cultures, right? When there's kind of the deeper meaning behind cultural traditions and they they're like the values of a culture and then there are the trappings that get placed upon them. And Nori in her desire to help the stranger would actually appeal to those values that are underneath everything and she'd be like wait a minute we're, we're people who stick together we help each other like a family like that's what we do and that was her motivation for helping this stranger whereas everybody else was kind of sticking to those trappings of no we stay on the trail and we don't talk to anybody else so they, they were being kind of pharisaical where she was kind of appealing to the deeper value I like that
1: I was just thinking the word pharisaical just before you said that.
0: Yeah. Great characters too. Yeah.
2: I also love, and I'm, I realize that I'm stripping this from the Hobbit. Like I, I don't think that this comes purely from like, if I had not, you know, if the, if rings of power was the only middle earth thing that I'd ever seen, I don't know if I would get this from it necessarily, but um, just the very token theme of these, little people navigating through a world of big danger. Yes. And the thing that can the it is the courage of the little people that overcomes mm-hmm. the dragon or the acolytes of Melkor in this uh in yeah. this situation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The smallest person shaking the fortunes of all. That's beautiful. Fun, yeah, fundamental to the Lord of the Rings. And it, it was, I, I think, an inspired choice on the part of the the showrunners to, to bring the Harfoots, the Hobbit ancestors, into this story because there is something about watching a TV show titled The Lord of the Rings, where you just need some hobbits, right? There's just, like, kind of this, like, something would be missing if it was just elves and dwarves doing their thing. And you'd be like, well, where where are, like, the little people? Like, where are, like, the normal people, the people I can relate to who don't have special abilities, who are trying to navigate this world? So, yeah, very relatable. Um,
2: well, I always find that funny, too, because like we are humans. <laughs> yeah, but I always find myself relating much more with the hobbits than the humans, right. which yeah. is, yeah. I think purposeful but weird at the same time. Probably.
1: Yeah. One thing that I think is cool is that having the hobbits who have that same culture but being nomadic, it just seems like a very natural beginning to the Hobbit culture, Hobbit species what would you call that (laughs) yeah like yeah yeah, Yeah. thank you that's what tolkien calls them yeah to the to the hobbit race it reminds me a little bit and this is a weird connection but in frozen 2 (laughs) (laughs) Northaldra, they're like this similar idea this kind of like deciduous forest nomadic people yeah i've never really learned about that in history i'd love to know what that's based on
0: yeah Also, I'll I'll just say this now because he's part of the plot line. I love Saddock Burroughs. Yes. (laughs) The the character Saddock Burroughs, um, played by Lenny Henry. Just fantastic. Uh, Rest in peace, Sadek. All right. Let's move on to Galadriel, Halbrand, and Numenor.
2: Again, not knowing much about the show when I came into it. Like, the first episode, I was very much just like, all right, let's see what they've cooked up here. Like, that's kind of where I was. And um, it seemed like this show was going to be, like, until it unfolded, it seemed like this was going to be a show about Galadriel. Which, Mm -hmm. I guess, to a certain degree, it is. But there's a lot more going on than just that, you know, at this point. Um, I was like mildly interested in 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 galadriel's plot line you know as it started like that was definitely interesting to me but Mm -hmm. i I wasn't like nearly as compelled by it until she met up with halbrand and then i got a lot more interested in that plot line and the like getting out of numenor and getting to the southlands to like save them was Mm -hmm. a very interesting plot to me um the relationship between Galadriel and Hallbrand is now given the c- concluding episode is now by far the most interesting part of the show to me. Like if I were to rewatch the season, that's yeah. what I'm looking for now. Yeah. Um. That also like really like even this, the, the, the reveal that Hallbrand is Sauron really like, that just adds a lot to the whole series to me now. Like, yeah. I, I immediately thought of the scene um, when uh, he was, like, casting her those visions, right? Yeah. It immediately made me think of the scene, and I know this is a controversial movie anyway, but in the scene in um, the Battle of the Five Armies movie mm. when um, Galadriel, like, faces the necromancer at Guldur, yeah. and, like, the... Like, immediately my brain, like, went to that scene. And Elrond and Gandalf are there as well. Right. And, like, my brain immediately went I to don't that scene. not remember that at all. It's pretty epic. I you believe should rewatch you. it.
1: I don't know. The Hobbit movies I enjoyed, but I wasn't as right.
0: into them.
2: I've actually seen the Hobbit movies much more than the Lord of the Rings really? movies. Just because the Hobbit movies were coming out when I was in college. So I saw them all in theaters, and, like, I've seen them since. So but, but, the, but the point is, though, I immediately thought of that sequence, and I was, like oh my goodness, like the weight, like, like, like yeah. we know that there's like this, we know that Galadriel and others, like from the scene in Fellowship and whatever, like we know that Galadriel has this like deep history with like the Dark Lord, like we know that. Yeah. But like the idea that like, not only is it like a personal history, but knowing that like she feels like responsible for his return to some degree and she was tempted for a moment by his offer of like being his queen and whatever like that real that stuff really interests me and like brought me so like to be completely fair like I was totally here for the show by the beginning of episode 8 I was already like fully in but by the end of episode 8 I'm like that I I feel like um my interest in the whole of Lord of the Rings yeah. legendarium is now kindled by that. Yeah. Like, I'm just very interested in, in that stuff now. Right.
1: So one question, the, the whole like Galadriel saving or being responsible for Sauron not dying. That's not canon, right? No. Okay. It's, I think it's very, very good and it's well done.
0: Yeah. One thing that's interesting to me about Galadriel's journey to follow up on the previous note about the theme of power is that, In Tolkien's writing, Galadriel's motivation for leaving Valinor in the first place is because she wants to rule a realm of her own in Middle-earth, whereas in Valinor, she's merely a lesser power. So this idea of rule and dominion and power is actually central to Galadriel's motivations in the lore. But in this show, The Rings of Power, they make Galadriel's motivation primarily revenge for the death of her brother and her goal basically being eradication of Sauron and all of his servants. So then when Halbrand Sauron proposes to rule Middle-earth alongside her, she recoils at the very idea of ruling, presumably because she believes in democracy. Uh, whereas in Tolkien, if Sauron were to make that offer, she would reject it not because ruling itself is bad, but because she just doesn't want Sauron to be the one doing the ruling. She wants to be the one calling the shots because she's someone wise.
1: Galadriel did seem a little obsessive, especially early on with just trying to, you know, eradicate every trace of Sauron.
0: As Puddleglum would say, you are a chap of one idea, aren't you?
1: (laughs) And yes, Nate makes comments like this in real life, too. Like also like when he's interacting with the kids, which is even funnier because they have no idea what's going on. And so it was like a little hard to believe at first. Yeah but sometime around i think it was when she and muriel got on the same team am i saying that right muriel mm-hmm. i was just sold when she and Mar- when she got muriel on her side it just something clicked in that and it it was just that i mean that's another like beautiful friendship yeah you know there's also kind of a pattern of like strong women who are also very feminine feminine as well and you really see that, like, it's a beautiful female leadership, not women trying to be men or trying to be weird. It was just very, very good. I love Elendil. I think he's fantastic. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, really excellent.
1: He's, you know, just very believable. He's like the quintessential, I don't know, soldier. He, it, he really seems like you're like, yeah, that's Aragorn's, like, great-great-grandpa. Mm-hmm. I also think, you know, the stuff about were being kind of a spoiled kid is great and very realistic. I love I love all the Isildur Elendil. That whole thing is fantastic.
2: See, right now, Isildur is the character... Actually, well, Isildur's sister is the character I'm least interested in. But Isildur is the character that I am least interested in. Uh, not because I'm not interested in his plot line, but I just feel like the way that they, like, presented us with his character, I, like if I did not know that he has had a grand destiny, I would be completely uninterested in. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I literally forgot to the point where I literally (laughs) forgot that at the end of the season, he is like lost (laughs) and presumed dead. And we have like no clue where he is or what's going on with him.
0: Yeah. And such an odd cliffhanger since he's a character that we absolutely know survived. Right, right, right.
1: (laughs) So, Can I say, I actually love that. The fact that he, right, he's kind of a jerk, and then we know he has this big destiny, and then he ultimately, like, he's a good guy, but then fails to destroy the ring. So we know he has a really interesting arc, but there's something as a viewer knowing that we kind of know the end that, for me, enables me to, like, sit back and enjoy the journey more. I'm that kind of person who sometimes, if a plot is, like, really intense or when I'm reading a book, if it's, like, you know, I'm a a little too gripping. I'll read the end. And then when (laughs) I know what happens, I can actually sit back and enjoy what's happening
0: more. Yeah. I'll (laughs) mention a few things. I think, again, I think, um, you guys have have some, you've, you've brought up some fantastic points and some, some strengths of the show. I think, um, again, the Halbrand Sauron reveal has recolored this plot line for me. And I'm really excited to revisit, um, Galadriel's uh relationship with Halbrand throughout throughout the show I think for me just some some potential missteps in the Numenor plot line the, this um plot line of Kemen and Aarion uh Kemen being Farazon's son and uh Aarion being Elendil's daughter oh I did
1: not realize so Kemen like the guy who looks like a I don't know, like a Roman a Caesar? Roman? Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh,
1: I did not... Yeah. That explains a lot. I had no idea
0: that, that he was his son. He was own yeah. son. Yeah, so th- there's just... That's, uh, why he, he that's why
2: he had that conversation <laughs> with him where, like, he was trying to... There was that sequence where he was trying to, like, assert his will kind of like over his dad and then ferrissan like totally put him in his place
0: yeah yeah yeah. ferrissan's like no let's go along with this um but basically the um obviously you have elendil's family is like tied to the faithful the people who are connected with uh the will of the valar and who are friendly with elves Uh, elendil's name meaning elf friend as has been made much of in the show And, um, but they've kind of cast Aarian as being not a fan of the idea that uh, folks would go with Galadriel to Middle-Earth, but they didn't really explain why. And so you have this very odd plot line of Aarian being like, Kemen, you've got to stop them. And then Kemen's like, oh, yeah, I should. And then he's like... Dad, how about you stop them? And then his dad like gives dad's him some like, really no. good reasons why not to stop them. And then Kevin's like, "I'm gonna burn the <laughs> ships." going burn Burns ships, which presumably he's doing because he likes Arian and That's wants Arian. A
1: little bit of a hard and motive to swallow. And yeah. then
0: like, and then like, just
2: conveniently, <laughs> Sildur is going away in that <laughs> boat, and he's like, Here we go. like
0: again, like it's. Fine, like I'm fine with the Sealer saving yeah, Kevin. Whatever, it's fine. But like I just, th- the plotline didn't matter. That was weird. At all. It it just did not matter at all for the season. And I was I was actually just talking to Rich about this off air, where I think this season has so many interesting things and so many things that are consequential that I think they need to set up characters when they need them, and they did not need aarian and Kemen in this season. And so I would have preferred that if they wanted those characters for later seasons, they would have just had the characters exist in the show. We can see them on screen. That's fine. But why do you need this whole arson plot line? It just, there's just like, we also like, know. know,
2: effectively nothing about them really. Yeah. So, so giving us that amount of screen time with them in, in season one is kind of moot, you know, like, it's just like, Okay, like, yeah, yeah, like, but, but I mean, they are setting up something like this. What, what's her name again? I'm sorry. Arian. Arian. Yeah. Um, I've just been calling her the sister, but there is like some, they're obviously setting up something grand with her, right? which is interesting. Um, It doesn't seem like Elendil cares too much about her, which is strange, but <laughs> like, you know, we'll see what happens yeah. with that.
0: I, I just think I'm sure it'll I'm sure it will pay off eventually, but I would prefer that they set those characters up in the season where the payoff occurs, in the same way that like the Jackson films set up Eomer and Eowyn and all of Rohan in the Two Towers when their plot line is significant to the broader story, rather than throwing like three Eomer scenes into the Fellowship of the Ring, just so you know him for later. Right? It's like there's limited time. So let's just be careful how we use it and use the first movie or the first season's time selectively.
1: I, I agree that the burning the ships is a little <laughs> unnecessary, although I guess they needed that to get door on the journey. But if I, it makes sense why they'd need to set it up, even if the payoff is later, because Arian is Isildur's sister, and you need to see that relationship develop while door is still in Numenor. And so... They probably spent a little bit too much a little too much time on it, but there might be a payoff coming really soon. I just
2: think that ultimately like there th- it appears that they are thinking of this show as like an extended narrative, not as like five chapters necessarily. And so like there are parts like when you're reading a novel, like there are parts of the story that we are but but unlike when you're reading a novel, we have to wait like two plus years maybe. To see what happens next. Yeah. So, you know, which is,
1: is some of that, are, we're used to such fast paced storytelling and fast paced movies in our culture. It's nice when something slows down a little bit.
0: Yeah. I, I just think I for about two years. For, though, for, for me, it didn't work because it felt irrelevant. Again, maybe it'll be relevant later, but for now, it felt irrelevant. And the motivations for me didn't track where they, they didn't sell the motivations, why Arian would want what she wants, why Kevin would do what he did. So I'm just saying, for me, that that part didn't work. Okay. My, yeah, that's true. Um, I guess we don't know why I don't Arian, need... Yeah, right, right.
1: Why she doesn't want her brother and dad okay. to go.
2: And, not, and that's a... The, I don't want to go down a trail here, but just to to be said as well, mm-hmm. another criticism that I've seen floating out there in the world that I do think is valid is the fact that there are a very... There are a a ridiculous amount of plot lines in this show. Like, Mm -hmm. like there are, there are so many care. Like, if you, you would not be able to casually watch this show. Like, if you don't follow who these people are, what their motivations are, what their relationships to each other are, like you couldn't pick up this show in halfway through and understand what was going on. You know, and I'm not saying that shows should be, you know, be that way. I'm just saying that there are a lot. And, and it is funny in the pacing as well. I know, Nate, you and I talked about this. There was times where we would go an entire episode without seeing a particular set of characters. And, like, sometimes we would go, you know, two weeks or, you know, whatever time without seeing a certain region. And I felt like that was just an interesting pacing choice. That, like, yeah, we got so many things going on at once that we can't even see them all in a 70-minute episode.
0: Yeah. Another thing I thought was curious was um, Isildur's distractibility was kind of used as a mystery where they have this voice calling to him from the west of Numenor, um, which I think we could guess maybe that's his mom's voice. Later, we learned that his mother drowned. um, So maybe he hears his mom's voice calling him to the west. Um, But that was just a piece that it happened and he was, it was kind of sold to like, this keeps happening. He's distracted. It makes him lose his job and like, Oh, why do you keep wanting to go West? Um, And then of course he ends up going East and now he's stuck in the East. Um, Again, this is another thing I think will probably pay off down the road. I'm sure they have a reason for it. It was a little curious to me simply because in Canon, currently the Valar have a ban on Numenor sailing, the Numenorians sailing to Valinor, um, sailing west. So when they said that Isildur wants to go west, does he want to go to Valinor? That would be kind of strange because there's a ban on that. Um, or does he want to go to the west of Numenor? And that would be kind of strange because Elendil literally takes Galadriel to the west of Numenor to go to the library, which is where she learns about Sauron's Mordor plot among other things. Um, so basically, this, this plot line of a Isildur being distracted by wanting to go west, I just found odd because I don't know what they meant by that. I don't know who was calling to him or why or what impact it has on the broader story. Um, so again, that's just another kind of odd thing that they kept coming back to without explaining it.
2: I'm sure yeah. we'll figure it out, but it almost... Like, I'm sure it will make sense, but it almost would have made more sense if he was being called East. Because, right. like, he has a destiny there. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. where
0: Asildur ends up. And he's specifically not allowed to go west. And he's part of the family of the faithful. And in the canon, like, Isildur is one of the important faithful. Like, he does a lot of things in service of the Valar. And uh, for the sake of Middle earth, like, he's not, he's not like a rebel, you know? So, like, um, mm-hmm. that's just another thing I found odd.
1: Maybe this is one of those like trying to get a little more modern with the storytelling, you know, like finding yourself. Yeah, You can. Blah, mean, blah
0: blah blah. Remains to yeah. be seen. He wants to be a wayfinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I will say, Fly I <laughs> I like what they're doing with Farizan. Um In the lore, Farazon becomes a very important character in the Second Age. He, I I like creepy goatee. Yeah, yeah. I liked what they're doing with him as a political operative. Um, I think that that was a good a good setup. I will say, I think uh, it was a little funny how they kind of positioned it as, like, "Do you like elves or do you not like elves?" and he and he was kind of like, "The elves are gonna take our jobs," and it kind of felt like a little bit, um, just like anti-immigrant, like simplistic, uh, messaging. That was here, probably the intent. Which I think I think was the intent. Yeah, here here in the first season, and I think that that basically, um. If you were anti-elf, you were not gonna go with Galadriel. But if you were if you were pro-elf, then you were gonna follow Galadriel to fight in Middle Earth for the Southlands. And I just felt like it was kind of a curious dichotomy where it's like, well, it seems like you could be like pro-elf, but also maybe not want to go on this plot to save the Southlands that you're not familiar with. So it was just kind of an, I just felt like that was a little bit odd in terms of the way they set it up. Because in the lore, the motivation is more whether you're faithful to the Valar or not, not so much do you like elves or not. Um, and here it was kind of very much a, do you like elves? And I I didn't feel like Galadriel's case to go east was particularly strong. Um, I think we know that S- Sauron and Adar were doing things that needed to be stopped. But I think in the context of Numenor, I really forgive the Numenorians for not wanting to follow Galadriel on a quest to go where she thinks there might be orcs based on the word of a man who says he had orcs in the Southlands at one point, but doesn't particularly want to go back at this time. And a mm-hmm. guy um, who
2: literally doesn't even, she has to force him <laughs> to go to back anyway. She has to convince him to go right. back.
0: It was kind of a shaky sell to me. And I'm honestly kind of surprised that it worked out. I mean, I'm, again, I'm glad that she got her army, but that to me was just like, I felt like she needed a little bit more. Um to maybe convince Numenor to muster the ships.
1: Yeah, I, I think a lot of that was uh, like decent but a little off until she had Muriel on her team. Something clicked for me. I don't know why. But once once she, but how did she got Muriel on her team. She was That's a little bit more vulnerable, part. I think, with what she needed and she saw she realized why Muriel was acting the way she was because her father was so sick and she was afraid of the downfall of Numenor.
0: Right, so so I think if we if we're charitable to the showrunners and the writers, they they would say, uh, you know, Tar Palantir was an elf friend, and he was faithful to the Valar, and he wanted Numenorians and elves to to fight side by side, and he saw the downfall of Numenor would be turning against the will of the Valar, and so oh. he would want to help the elves, right? And so Tar Muriel wants to please her father and do the right thing and wants to help the elf who comes to them. She doesn't want the downfall of Numenor, et cetera. I just think all of that was pretty jumbled. And all of their, the times when they showed Tar Palantir, her father, were pretty cryptic and there was That's a little bit true. of back and forth there. And mm-hmm. I just think I, as somebody who has read about Tolkien's second age, I understand, why the characters supposedly did what they did. But just watching the show, I don't think they sold the motivation.
1: Interesting. Alright, so one other thing before we move off the Numenor plotline that I'd like to mention is the Galadriel-Halbrand dynamic is really, really fascinating. So woman's perspective here, after, I don't remember which episode it was, maybe the fourth? And Galadriel and Halbrand were sitting and, you know, each telling the other that they, you know, felt that noble reason for fighting once again. And I I remember saying to Nate, like, oh, do you think there's sexual tension between them?
0: Oh, like after the battle in episode yeah, six? Yeah.
1: yeah. And Nate was like, maybe or maybe it's, what did you say? More nefarious or maybe it's worse or something. And I was like, what? And he goes, Halbrand could be Sauron. And I was like, oh my gosh, really? But... What, what's funny about this is before we started recording, Rich mentioned something about Halbrand being seductive. Hmm. And I said seductive. He and- was
2: seductive to me. Oh, no, yeah. Not in a sexual <laughs> way, but in a, in, in a power <laughs> way.
1: Right. Well, but like.
0: Powell
1: What are you quoting? His like seductive nature actually makes a lot of sense. And, like, trying to hit on some of that sexual tension. Like, like realizing that he is Sauron, like, that was probably there on purpose. Even though Galadriel is married, which is a whole other kitten caboodle. Because she's like, oh, I had a husband. And then, poof, he's gone. But...
0: I didn't bother looking for him.
1: Yeah, that was weird. But it, it really... But I'll
0: track Sauron to
2: the ends of the earth because my of my brother. <laughs> brother. That was a little weird.
1: Agreed. I think we're, yeah. But, um... It it I is agree. just it is just interesting, and you can even see that, you know, that that seductive nature mm-hmm. comes into play when Sauron is trying to get Galadriel to join him, and she she doesn't succumb to it, but she finds it tempting, and that is a very yeah. real thing. Like Tolkien's, he's really good about his. You know, we know what's good and we know what's evil, but his characters are complex. And that they struggle with good and evil. You see that in Frodo. You see that in Sam. And I like that we're seeing that in Galadriel. Yeah,
2: I oh, think. Yeah. I think that the what is so interesting to me about Halbrand being Sauron is the fact that he really was like an ultimate example of uh, a a deceiver. Better, yeah. better than many deceiver characters I've seen in similar properties because mm. and and I say that because he was absolutely convincing to the point where I wouldn't even be surprised if when they were filming the first couple episodes that he was in he didn't even know that the actor didn't even know that he was Sauron you are correct yeah so I didn't know oh, that really that, he didn't know
0: he didn't know for the first two episodes
2: so, so that that makes total sense because the cell completely yeah. came through and then the um and you know, props to Charlie Vickers because yeah. when the m- moment well almost it's just a little over the top, and I texted Nate about this while I was watching it. But like literally like the second that he like wakes up in in the Elven Tower and like comes and starts talking to Kelly I'm like, this dude's Sauron. Like there's no question. <laughs> like like because he came off like so slick, like in you know, immediately mm-hmm. in that scene. But that aside First of all, he like again, he's able to bring Celebrimbor, who's this ancient wise dude, into his confidence immediately. But how does he do that? He does it by playing into Celebrimbor's fears and his pride. Yeah. So flattery. right into that yeah. that mm-hmm. he starts with flattery, but then he plays into his fear that he might not be able to finish, you know, the yeah. job. And so that Then when he goes and when he's deceiving Galadriel down on the dock or whatever and he's inviting her to join him or whatever, what he offered, again coming as like a Star Wars fan or even a Narnia fan as well, right, in these other properties, like what he offered her to me felt way more tempting than most of the offers that the evil characters present in other stories right like yeah.
1: the white witch in edmund or something like yeah that. or yeah.
2: like or like when people are offered to turn to the dark side in star wars it's really not that tempting it's like mm-hmm. oh like unlimited power but you're going to become this like disgusting thing right whereas right. like while that may happen when you bind yourself to evil in lord of the rings as we see with gollum and whatever right In that moment, like when he truly offers Galadriel everything that she knows she wants and things that she didn't even know that she wanted,
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, it and he's actually a little kind of convincing, like, I, I mean, to the point that I was like, what, maybe, like, maybe he really does want to repent. Well, especially because we don't,
2: especially because we don't know what the show creators are doing because not everything is canon. Is everything he said to her a lie? Like, is the this the Sauron that we currently know, is he completely and totally evil? Or is what he said about after uh, Morgoth was defeated partially true? Yeah. Did Halbrand slash Sauron want to stay in Numenor? And like, I was so tremendously um, compelled by the Mm. fact that when he said that when he said to her that he didn't lie to her and I was like, this is amazing because she lied for him yeah, and her own headstrongness and her confidence, she barreled over herself and tripped into the deception that he didn't even have to do. Yeah, and right. I was like, "This guy is the best deceiver I've ever seen on screen." So like,
1: did he create so something? Here's an, like an interesting question: Did he know she was going to handle it that way, or did he just take advantage of it when the time came?
0: I mean, we can, we can't know that, but yeah, I mean, I, I I I do think that he was deceiving, and I think that he was working a master plan. But uh, Rich, to your point, I mean, even in Tolkien's lore, he says that at first Sauron was. Sincere that he he actually did want to heal middle earth that he actually had good motives for a time um following the the casting out of Morgoth but then over time he became a deceiver and consumed by evil so we we d- we actually do know that there was a period of n- not necessarily good Sauron but uh, but helpful Sauron <laughs> well, <laughs> who, who legitimately wanted to help yeah. <coughs> I also wonder
2: what like I know Sauron is a shapeshifter, mm-hmm. but like I wonder if the form that we're getting that we see, like the Halbrand form, is that a form that he selected for this time or like I I wonder and especially me not knowing, like I don't know I haven't read the Silmarillion or the appendixes or whatever. So like this might this answer might already be given. But like Is that what he looks like or is he as corrupted as the ringwraiths become by his own evil? You know, like I'm not, you know, that is a question that I'm
0: looking forward to seeing. Mm. Okay. Well, I won't give that away.
1: Can I, uh, one other interesting hypothetical. Yeah. If Galadriel had believed him when he said he wanted to repent, is it possible he actually would have?
2: Well, I think that depends on whether or not he really wanted it or not, or if he was just lying to her.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think we're meant to think, yes. I, I think there is a sense in which he, he actually wanted a little bit of a pull to the light. He even says, you know, you bind me to light. I bind you to power that it's kind of this, you can tell like he, he seems to like some of her qualities in truth, in mm-hmm. addition to wanting to pull her to himself. Um, so I, I, I do think he's in he's in that place where she has the potential See, I to, cho- su- to I sway cho- him while still having this master plan. But
1: if so, then she doesn't take advantage of it.
2: Well, because I chose to take it as he was completely lying because if he was telling the truth, I feel like she was foolish to not take him up on it. So I So because of that, I chose to believe that he was lying so that i felt good about her denying his offer.
0: Oh yeah, i don't think i don't think she like should have taken him up on his offer. I mean, i think like his offer was in a way a deception, right? It was it was to fuel his own his own desires and his own plans. So i'm not saying that, but i'm just saying in in response to Megan's question of like is there a part of him that like could have responded to Galadriel? I think yes. Like i i think that she did have a certain power over him and that there was a part of him that was pulled toward her in the way that like in Tolkien's lore there was a sincerity to Sauron wanting to help and wanting to be good and I think that Galadriel did start to pull him in that direction but not far enough. (laughs) It's
1: almost like that wanting to reform the bad boy kind of thing. Right,
0: exactly. Let's move on to the Southlands. We have Bronwyn, Theo, and Arondir, and of course the villain Adar. We have the eventual battle in Middle Earth, bringing in the plotline of Galadriel and Numenor, and of course we have the creation of Mordor. What did you all think about this whole uh, Southlands plotline and the creation of Mordor?
1: I really liked the um, the whole like b- Bronwyn, Arondir, Theo plotline. I thought that was really, really great. Um, the Southlanders—they just felt very believable. You know, a lot reminded me a lot of Rohan, minus the horses, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, they were—they were really, the really low good. Men. I liked the relationship between Arondir and Bronwyn. It's a—it's a very, you know, it's incomplete, but it's a very sweet romance. But also, you can see they're like struggling with knowing what to do about their feelings. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um. I also love what Theo's gone through because I I remember at one point, like, throwing out to Nate, like, could Theo be Sauron? Is he going to be bad? Because he, you know, was interested in that hilt of Sauron's sword that was Mm -hmm. the key. But seeing him, you know, at that age, 14 or whatever, when often, you know, you're kind of kids are trying to figure out who they are. And seeing, like, he struggles. He does some real stupid things, but he ends up, doing the right thing, giving the key over, fighting for the right side. It's just really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of interesting. We have no clue who his dad is. I would love to love to know more about that.
0: There was no father. <laughs>
1: that was bad. Good, but bad.
0: Yeah, for a while, people were like, maybe Hallbrandt's his dad. And it's like, well, at this point, let's say no. <laughs> well, yeah, not to mention that
1: he doesn't look anything like him. Yeah. Um, I also thought one, one moment that was just really sweet when Theo and Galadriel found everybody, uh, around the rest of the Southlanders after, um, the explosion of Mount Doom, it was just really cute to see how much, how excited he was to see his mom. And then just that big hug he gave her on deer was so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So I loved all of that. The creation of mortar I thought was great. Scientifically, I don't know how accurate that is, but it was really intriguing, that idea of
0: just... Perhaps Earth science works differently in Middle Earth. Yeah, uh-huh. So what what I've heard... Uh, well, first, let me just say, you don't think Theo's going to become a ringwraith? I had not even had that <laughs> oh thought, goodness. but now I, <laughs> I absolutely do. Thank <laughs> you for that. Uh,
1: that is so sad, but it could be, right? Because if he becomes like the king of something...
0: Yeah, I imagine some ring-raids are hiding in plain sight right now cuz we know that you know the nine rings given to mortal men, those men become ring-raids. Um several of them are from Numenor, some they are from the to, East.
2: They have to be given the rings f- by Sauron though, yes. right? So like yep. whoever these nine are, like we I assume over the next couple seasons probably like mm-hmm. they have to become come, come right. into Sauron's circle. Yeah. So I while some of them may be with us already, I, I have a feeling that we're going to be introduced to the majority yet or something. It, okay.
1: it definitely could be, Theo. That would be sad. I feel it's like there's r-
2: not enough men in the show right now to, to make yeah. up the nine.
1: Theo's kind of, he's a little edgy. Yeah. You know, but I, I'm I'm hopeful.
2: Like, Could you see him swinging a mace on the back of a... Yeah. Asghoul? Doesn't I,
1: he remind you of, like, an emo kid?
2: I mean, yeah, the hair adds a lot to it, and his like angry uh, disposition in the beginning. Yeah,
1: a little angsty, but I, I, I'm hopeful. I don't know. Now I'm, now I'm nervous. Thanks, honey. But
0: <laughs> it's just interesting because we don't have a lot of like random kings of men walking around right now, so it's, it'll just be interesting to see who they turn into those nine. Um, so yeah, on the on the earth science thing, I've heard that like the the water and the volcano. Um, could could like result in an eruption? It w- probably wouldn't result in that level of an eruption, but it, it would result in an eruption of some kind, like a an explosion of some kind. So there there is some uh, science behind it. I I think for me, first first let's look at the positive. It was pretty cool that like you had these orcs tunneling and then that connects to the creation of mordor we actually got an audience response from julian who says i really liked the flooding twist all the tunnels dug weren't just to avoid the sun so that that was cool not to mention
2: i think one of the coolest sequences in the entire show was the prison escape sequence when the elves the frontier elves were um captured by the uh, uh, yeah. the orcs i I forget what episode there was in pretty yeah. early on, but like that was like one of the coolest sequences and then and and the uh seeing the elves wanting to not cut down that tree that was in the yeah. way it was like just a cool yeah oh,
0: yeah
1: that was that was cool,
0: yeah, so that's um i I think overall like that that creation of Mordor was really powerful. I think one thing for me, um I would just say death is a major theme in Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien once said that the Lord of the Rings was primarily about death and about like how, how to face death and, um, how different characters did that. And that's just such a fascinating thing. Cause I think most people would not say that's what the Lord of the Rings is about, but that's something Tolkien found to be extremely important. And I think so far, like this series has not really reckoned with death in the way that I would expect that it might Um, And again, we'll probably see that in future seasons. But I just think so far there have been opportunities like the creation of Mordor. This is this massive moment when uh, the, the, the science part that maybe wasn't quite right is if this level of like pyroclastic flow or like these fireballs are coming, like basically more people would have died. Like in in the show, most people just kind of walk free, like they're coughing and there's like smoke, but like most people are fine, at least most of the main characters. Um, And realistically, it's like, well, probably more people would have died. But I also think just thematically, I think that it would have been interesting for it to be more of a tragic moment, even for Galadriel to have thought like, Galadriel brought about this battle, And now this tragedy has occurred. And I think in the show, it's like, oh, this is sad that this happened. But because really, like, yes, Muriel gets blinded, but all of the key characters survive, even Bronwyn and Arandir and Theo, who are these, like, show creation characters. Very true. And like, obviously we know Isildur is fine. And like, like one of Isildur's friends dies, but he's the one we don't really care about. And like, so I I just feel like they didn't sell the tragedy of the moment in the way that they could have if they just let, just let at least a character that we deeply care about die. Um, So that was kind of curious to me. I do think Adar was a great villain.
2: Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed and hope to continue to enjoy his character.
0: We'll get to see his face off against Hall Sauron.
2: Or will he just bend the knee as soon as he arrives? I'm curious to see that. I doubt it. He seems he to seems be pretty anti-Sauron. really hate him, yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Elves and dwarves. We talked about a little, a little bit about this already—the um, Elrond Disa friendship. We have the mining of Mithril, and of course, the forging of the first rings of power. Any thoughts on uh, elves and dwarves, Elrond, Durin, et etc.?
2: In the first half of the show, by far, actually, the first two thirds, the most interesting plot to me is is the one that surrounds uh, the dwarves and Elrond's yeah. position there. So. I think the thing that got me coming back in episodes one and two was that plot line.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It was just fun. It was really, really fun. Lots of great banter. Yeah. Um, I liked seeing the Dwarvish women. Disa was hilarious. Yeah. Um, just aesthetically. I loved. Is it Kazadum? Is that what the place is called? Right. Um, just getting to see, you know, like a, a Dwarvish life with like plants and light. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously different than something you'd find above ground, but it was really beautiful. Yeah. I thought the mithril thing was really, really cool. That debate between um, Durin the Fourth, right, and his father right. about you know whether to take the risk to mine the mithril to help the elves, I thought was really cool, and that actually kind of ties in with Nori's debate as well as when do I break social code. To serve a friend, and I also I, I appreciated the um the plotline where Elrond had kind of ditched Durin for twenty years or whatever and had yeah. to make up make it up to him. I'm someone who's terrible at staying in touch with people, so it's just a I don't know. It's a good reminder to stay in touch with those people who aren't nearby, but also hopeful that you can rekindle friendships that have, mm. you know. I loved
2: the, hibernating yeah, yeah that's great I loved the sense that he were where Durin was so set because he said like it had been like nothing to an elf but it was a whole lifetime to him yeah I was like that was that was interesting
0: and that is so Tolkien I mean Tolkien talks about the differences between these races and their lifespans such a huge part of his work is is timelines and how time works and I what I really appreciated about it was it happened so early on in this show. And this show is one that many people had talked about the timeline compression of we're taking this massive age and we're bringing it into a compressed timeline where everybody's going to be alive at the same time. And I really appreciated that they brought in that difference between the elven lifespan and the dwarf or man lifespan right there at the beginning to just showcase the, the difference, and to sit with that, because that is so fundamental, and becomes even more important later in the second age.
2: The dwarves in the line of Durin can live five hundred years. Oh, right? really? Isn't that right?
0: I, I don't know.
1: Can someone a Google Tolkien
0: it? thing that you don't know? Let me look. Rich is like, is this? Is this? Is this? Pop- That's what you feel all the time, yeah. except for now, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh,
1: <laughs> it's national treasure. It's okay, Riley so. talking about. Daily Savings Time, which Benjamin <laughs> Franklin did not invent. I learned from a podcast, fun fact. <laughs> he it didn't even br- know that. Yeah, it's a British invention, I think.
2: Yeah, so according to this, the the typical dwarves live around 250 years, but certain dwarves in the line of Durin lived up to 500 years.
0: Interesting. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so I think Elros lived 400 years, who was like the founder of Numenor. So apparently some dwarves lived even longer than him. I have a lot to say about the Mithril plotline, and because it's late, I'm going to save everybody my massive thoughts on that. Call in later if you want to talk about Mithril.
2: I mean, can we just for a second mention how lame
0: it was that the Balrog was awakened by a falling leaf?
2: Like, come on, man.
0: (laughs) That was a little little anticlimactic. I think that was a, a member berry. Remember that? Yeah, like <laughs> I, yeah, fan, yeah, little fan service there. Um, no, I mean, t- to me, I I didn't love like the elves dying plotline. I just think that there was some stuff there where, uh, you know, basically we have to take it on Gil Galad's word that like. This tree that's shriveling means that all the elves are going to die in the next 3 weeks. Yeah, that or, was also or whatever very weird um, that
2: like that wasn't explained at all like why they would die or or yeah. why it was
0: so quick. Yeah. So we we didn't know why the tree began to shrivel. We didn't know why the tree shriveling meant that the elves' souls were going to be destroyed. And we didn't know why we knew that that would somehow happen by the spring. We kind of yeah, had like, to take it all on like Gilgalad's word. Yeah, like I was
2: just thinking too, I just <laughs> remembered that I was thinking in the beginning of the show. Like I was like, wait, are the again not knowing? Like I was like, are the elves soul tied to this tree? <laughs> yeah. Like if someone cut down this tree, do all the elves die? Yeah. Like the it's droids. Like the <laughs> droid <game>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm like, if we cut down this tree, the elves are just like Wah!
0: like is that what's going on? Yeah. So
2: So yeah. is that not
0: the case? it's not the case. Okay. And that that that's the thing is that i i think what what will often happen with plot lines like this that are put in adaptations is that people will say, "Oh yeah, i didn't quite like get that, i didn't quite understand it, but i'm sure if i read the books, then i'll understand it." And the answer is no. You won't understand <laughs> it cuz it ain't in the books. <laughs> it is a fabrication.
1: It is a way, though, to connect to that with what's going on in the Southlands and with Sauron. Like, I can see why they made the call.
0: Right. They they wanted to connect the light of the trees to the Silmarils, to Mithril, to the Rings of Power. They wanted to create that connection, and they wanted to create an existential threat for the elves that would make, okay, everybody's going to die if we don't do the right things, right? So there's kind of this, like, world-ending threat. Um, I get it. I didn't love it but I'm very happy for those of you who did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, um, one other thing on this. Uh, Obviously, this this plot line then ties into the creation of the Rings of Power. Uh, Galadriel has to give up her dagger. She's been holding on to this dagger of her brother Finrod that has been representative of her uh, quest to find and destroy Sauron. She has to give this up at the end, melt it down to help forge the Rings of Power. I really liked this. Uh,
1: I agree. That's it's, great.
0: Thank you. It's um, a great, great symbolism, right? In the, uh, partly in the odd end of her quest, given that she now knows who Sauron is, but also because she's giving up this thing that has been such an obsession of hers and so valuable to her. The giving up of items of value at the proper time is such a key theme throughout Tolkien. It is very important, obviously, with the One Ring and the ability to give up or resist the Ring or any of the Rings of Power, fundamental to to this series too, of course. But also there's this great moment in in The Lord of the Rings when uh, Pippin has dropped his elven brooch from his cloak and Aragorn returns it to him. And Aragorn says, here also is your brooch, Pippin. I have kept it safe, for it is a very precious thing. I know, said Pippin. It was a wrench to let it go, but what else could I do? Because he had dropped it so that Aragorn would uh, know the trail to find him. And Aragorn says, nothing else. One who cannot cast away a treasure at need is in fetters. You did rightly. So this ability to value these treasures while they're needed, but then to cast them away. When we must,
2: you must learn to let go what you fear to lose.
0: Sure, particularly when you're at the fires of Mount Doom. <laughs> Let's talk about favorite character. Richard Christman. Who's your favorite character in Rings oh, of Power? The full name. Um,
2: I I don't. It's hard to label a single character. Okay, the character I enjoy the most is Durin. Um, a great, The a char- great choice. The character that I'm the most interested in is Hallbrand.
0: Okay. Yeah. Excellent. I'll leave
2: it at that. Fair. How about you, Megan?
1: I like Bronwyn. She's just wonderful. She lives in the mountains. She's a healer. She's strong, feminine. St- all the things.
2: I'm surprised Good you taste say in that. Men. Why? I'm surprised you say that because she comes off to me as a bit of like a witch character. What? Because she's like a, she's that's a, just how she comes off She's to a me.
1: doctor. She's a nurse, doctor. She's a healer. With She just is using like old-fashioned medicine.
2: Okay. I consider
0: myself corrected.
2: Yeah.
1: The the mystics, yeah. They're super creepy. <laughs>
0: yeah. Imagine if your favorite character was the mystics. Yeah, I'd be highly <laughs> concerned. Pretty <Really> sweet <laughs> villains, though, you got to admit. They're like, good villains. Awesome but they're terrifying. sequence. Ugh. Yeah. All right, all excellent choices. My favorite character is Elrond, mm-hmm. played by Robert Aramayo. I could have bet all the money in my bank account that that's what you were going to say. Oh, yeah. He's so good, guys. Oh man, yeah. so, uh, he's so he's so uh, lovable, likable. He's so he's just s- Zach Ozinski f- to me. He's you Zach. You want to give him a hug? <laughs> yeah. He probably plays the flute. Did you hear that, Zach? Yeah. Hi, Zach. He's got good
1: hair. Both of them yeah. do, actually.
0: He's so like sincere. Yeah, he's very
2: ornery in Lord of the Rings, though, like with Arwen and that, like he's always angry, <laughs> oh, but which surprises he's, me.
1: Well, he's an old dad and, sad, and his uh, yeah. daughter's yeah. falling in love with a guy that he only half approves of. That's mm-hmm. just normal dad stuff.
0: Yeah. I just love I love how like a, how, how a, what a smooth operator he is. You've got like Hallbrand on the one hand who's like playing, you know, 3D chess by being, like, a deceiver for, like, bad purposes. And you've got Elrond, who's, like, also playing chess in a way, right? Like, he's playing Durin and, like, purposely losing this game to, like, get in with him and stuff. But he's doing it, like, out of love and for, like, good purposes. So he's, like, putting those good, like, political um, skills to good use.
2: Love him. Oh, yes. I like how he was introduced as well, where he was just, like, sitting in the trees and he was like annoyed that they came to get him. He's, and he's yeah, yeah.
0: writing gil Gallad's speech, yeah, which he right, then like right. mouths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good. Uh, some runner-ups. Durin, which he mentioned. Satic Burroughs, who I mentioned earlier. Nori Brandyfoot, lover, and Elendil. So your runners-up are just the
2: rest of the cast? <laughs> no,
0: Dude, <laughs> just the kidding. cast is yeah, massive. Yeah. I was just looking at the it cast is. today and it's so big. I yeah. was like, I cannot believe how many like key characters there are in this. can I series? say
1: that one thing that's just interesting there's a lot of key characters not a ton of extras in sure. like yeah you know this is something we talked about like the yeah. the actual number of Southlanders is pretty small
0: COVID yeah
1: yeah probably
0: yeah all right favorite scenes we may have mentioned them already uh so feel free to uh, mention that if you have but uh Megan what was what was one of your favorite scenes
1: I was thinking about this. I really like that moment when Mariel is with um, Elendil in kind of the belly of the ship. And she that was just a good scene. leans her head yeah. on his shoulder for a couple minutes. And and that need to just kind of be there and have support so you can go be strong. I think as a mom, that's something I need. <laughs> like sometimes I'll just, while Nate's working, just like go hug him for a second and like mm-hmm. get that strength I need to like go back with my game face with the kids. I think from a from a learning or from just a filmmaking perspective, there was also something just really powerful about the Galadriel and Sauron like jump into her Um, past and in her mind.
0: Such a good scene that was like mind palace. Yeah, it it
1: was like (laughs) I don't know, I don't know. Favorite's a hard word because it wasn't like a fun cozy scene, but it It was was really really well done, really good, yeah, and really powerful. And if you've ever struggled with you know mental health or any kind of doubt or any kind of mental challenge. It it really is very, very powerful.
0: Yeah.
2: So I guess the same way that I answered about favorite character, I have a favorite scene for fun and favorite scene for seriousness. And uh, Do it. My favorite scene for fun is the scene when uh, Elrond is talking to Durin about how the fate of the entire elven race <laughs> rests <laughs> in your hands. And he's like, Whose hands? (laughs) And then, then when he finally, he's like, he's like your hands. And he's like, huh? So yeah, like I I just like loved that scene. Like I, like I had this big smile on my face because of how well like acted and how well written it was. Um, but then my favorite scene, um, I, I really, really liked, and this isn't like an official answer, I think because of how small it is, but I really, really liked the like last shots of the season leading into the, um, credits like I thought that they mm. one of the strongest like exits of a scene of a season that I've seen can you um, remind
1: me what what they did
2: so like just the we we have the the forging of the rings in the in the tower and then it oh, kind yeah. of passes there's this very like eerie um, piece that was written with the lyrics of the uh, the the oh, riddle yeah. from Lord of the Rings but we see Hallibrand like hiking over the mountain to yeah. see um, and he sees Mount Doom. Okay,
1: can I point out he has different hair, doesn't he? Like he looks a little less scruffy and a little more like oh, yeah, yeah. dark and sultry. Yeah. Yeah. I think
2: well, I think that was just after he got cleaned up in um at the tower. But
1: his hair looked longer I thought. Maybe. No, no, it,
2: it was He diff- is a shapeshifter. He
0: has magic. He can do stuff with yeah. his hair. Um but the um the scene where Sauron simply walks into Mordor.
2: That was very very cool, but since that's just like a minor glimpse my uh my true answer is when uh the stranger said i am good and beat (laughs) back i was like this (laughs) and like the tension of her telling him that he can um like me personally i i struggle a lot with whether or not my i believe that like i my life is predetermined or if i can choose like who i am and like whether I'm one of gods or not. Like, does he get to pick or do I pick, you know? And so that, that discussion really interests me. And then him, uh, that just the, the power of his decision. Uh, and I think that was a very well filmed scene, very super well acted scene. Um, yeah. And uh, we haven't talked about the stranger much. So just really quick too, the way the stranger <laughs> is, um, depicted the way that he is costumed and the way that he moves around makes him look, Um, so otherworldly, and I just think that's just props to the
0: the creation team for that and Mm -hmm. the actor.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Daniel Wayman as the Stranger. Great favorite scenes. I'll mention uh, we talked about Elrond and Durin's argument about Elrond uh, missing Durin's life. One of my favorite scenes. Also, um, Elrond's memory of his father, (laughs) his father Irendil. is such a fascinating figure in the lore and uh just it's such an incredible story of like going to Valinor and convincing the Valar to help Middle-earth and then b- basically becoming a star by taking a Silmaril to the heavens um it's such a crazy like mythical story that Elrond's dad has
1: it's and that's one of those moments and you know like Tolkien Tolkien really knows how to create his history
0: yeah. I, yeah. But I mean, it's like, like an, an Elijah kind of thing. Like, it's just kind of this, like, I, I can't even believe this happened. This is incredible. And um, it, I think there's a way that you can kind of bring that in where it takes you out of the story. And it makes you feel like, oh, I don't believe this. But because of the way they brought it in, and, and Elrond is talking about his dad, and it's, it's about, it's about Elrond feeling like he can't measure up to his father. And that he no longer has a connection to his father. He can't even talk to his dad anymore. Such an amazing way of like bringing in the actual lore from Tolkien, but making it about something human. And Elrond using that to give Durin advice about Durin and his father. Mm. Uh, such a beautiful scene.
1: Yeah. That, Love that. That is really, I forgot about that. That's really cool.
0: Also, have to mention This Wandering Day. I like the song, but just the montage of the Harfoots uh, wandering, going on their journey as you see the locations on the map, um, including the Gray Marshes, which will become the Dead Marshes, uh, probably by the end of the show. But um, the Harfoots journeying, you know, w- with that beautiful song of poppies. I really enjoyed that. And uh, when the Harfoots set off after The Stranger in Episode 7 just this moment of, we're gonna go help them out. And it uh, echoed to me, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli saying, we're not gonna leave Merry and Pippin to their fate. Um, we're gonna go rescue them. And it's a, it's just such a Lord of the Rings thing to have a group of characters say, we're gonna go together to help this person. And even Sadduk saying, <laughs> <It> <laughs> I'm is gonna go really with beautiful. you. really
1: beautiful. <laughs>
0: One more thing about The Stranger. Is The Stranger Gandalf?
1: Yes.
2: I mean, I only think he is because you told me you think he is, so I really have nothing to say. <laughs> that,
1: the follow-your-nose line, I didn't catch it. Nate pointed it out to me, but that's a dead giveaway to me.
2: Yeah. It, at but this
1: point, no one else even makes sense.
2: Before I knew that, I was considering whether or not he was Gandalf or Saruman. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, at given some things about it now, particularly his unique relationship with the will-be hobbits. It just makes sense that it's Gandalf. Um, So yeah. I think at this point, I think it would actually be narratively weird if it was Saruman.
0: Right. Like now that we like the character so much well, as well. It's well, well we
2: should like Saruman as well because Saruman is good up until the time yeah. of Lord of the Rings. So we should like Saruman in the Second Age. But...
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's there's some weird there's some weird timeline stuff going on, and Cirdan the shipwright even had some misgivings about Saruman when he first arrived in Middle Earth. But um, yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff where up until this last episode, we thought this guy might be a blue wizard because the blue wizards spent time in the East. Tol- Tolkien says. Uh, I think they went as emissaries to distant regions east and south, far out of Numenorian range, missionaries to enemy-occupied lands, as it were. What success they had, I do not know, but I fear that they failed, as Saruman did, though doubtless in different ways. And I suspect they were founders or beginners of secret cults and magic traditions that outlasted the fall of Sauron. And in a later letter, he said... Morinatar and Romestamo, which are the names of the Blue Wizards, ensured that the forces of the East did not outnumber the West, thus helping secure victory for the free peoples in the War of the Ring. So Tolkien has these references to the Blue Wizards in the East, which is where we know the stranger and Nori are heading. They're heading to Rune, which is this land of the East that we know little about. But then we have (laughs) the stranger give this always follow your nose line, Um, which is directly from the Fellowship of the Ring movie. Uh, So in in the um, Fellowship of the Ring book, Gandalf says, uh, so Gandalf had sat in Moria, and then he says, in the watches I have made up my mind on which way to go. I do not like the feel of the middle way, and I do not like the smell of the left-hand way. There is foul air down there, or I am no guide. I shall take the right-hand passage. But of course, in the, in the movie, he says, when in doubt, marry a duck, always follow your nose. Which is essentially the same line the stranger uh, tells Nori at the end of this. So at this point, uh, while I think from a lore perspective, it would make more sense, uh, being in the second age, it should be a blue wizard. Being going to Rune, it should be a blue wizard. Um, but the fact that they have him building a relationship with the Harfoots and giving that line I think it would be very strange now to not be Gandalf. And I think there would kind of be like a fan uproar at that point because I think people are excited to see young Gandalf. So I'm guessing he is. I agree. I agree. All right. Ring number three, Speculation. This is where we're just going to get into what we think might happen in the future. So if you want to just sit with this season and not hear anything about what might happen later on, check out now. But for just a few minutes, we're going to talk about what we think will happen. This is Ring 3. Richard Chrisman, what are you looking forward to in Season 2? I am particularly looking forward to... Again,
2: I'm very, super intrigued by Halbrand and I want to see what happens um when he finishes his hike uh to Mount Doom. I I want to see even though it might be multiple seasons from now, I want to see him like forging the ring in the mountain and like putting the men under his will and stuff. Like I'm very excited to see like the creation of the Nazgûl and him like kind of building his kingdom and, like, assor- asserting his power in Mordor. Like, that really interests me. So, looking forward to that. Um, and then also seeing, we know from that at the time of The Hobbit, Gandalf is old friends with Galadriel and Elrond. So, I'm I'm excited to see, if the stranger is indeed Gandalf, I'm excited to see them come together, presumably prior to the War of the
0: Ring. Yeah, they got to meet up. So here's some quotes from an interview with THR that uh, the showrunners gave. Payne says, season one opens with, who is Galadriel? Where did she come from? What did she suffer? Why is she driven? We're doing the same thing with Sauron in season two. We'll fill in all the missing pieces.
2: Wow, interesting. I didn't expect that.
0: Yeah. McKay says, Sauron can now just be Sauron, like Tony Soprano or Walter White. He's evil, but complexly evil. We felt like if we did that in season one, he'd overshadow everything else. So the first season is like Batman Begins, and The Dark Knight is the next movie with Sauron maneuvering out in the open. We're really excited. Season two has a canonical story. There may well be viewers who are like, this is the story we were hoping to get in season one. In season two, we're giving it to them. Interesting. I think for me, uh, like I said early on, Rings of power, not a lot of rings, uh, not a lot of power. I think we're gonna get more. <laughs> we're gonna get more rings, that's for sure, in season two, uh, and probably a lot more power. So, like, they only forged three
2: rings, yeah. and now he's gone from Eregion. So, like, yep. does he forge the rings
0: for the dwarves and stuff like himself, or do, do no. the elves do that? Or no, Celebrimbor and the elves do. Okay, um, with the help of Sauron. And that's what's so strange is that um, canonically like the three rings were made without the help of Sauron and that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that they can't be overcome by him in the same way. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other rings were all made with the direct assistance of Sauron. Mm-hmm. So I wonder so if he's just
2: going, to, I wonder if, um, because Gladriel and Elrond will resist him, right? But I wonder yes. if he will just be so charming that he will
0: come yeah. right back in. He's coming back. I, I, th- I think Hall. I think Hallbrand, as we know him, is absolutely coming back to a region, and I think Celebrimbor is going to welcome him with open arms, um, because he's very helpful and he has a lot of gifts. Um, I do think it's strange now that because canonically, uh, Galadriel and Elrond and um, Gilgalad are very suspicious of Sauron. He fashions himself as Anatar, the Lord of Gifts, and they're kind of suspicious of him, but Celebrimbor and and the others are very much like welcoming him in and allowing him to help them. It's a strange point they leave us in now because they've kind of rushed that relationship with Celebrimbor and then all of a sudden Galadriel now knows Halbrand's true identity. So now we're at this place where is Galadriel just going to not say anything it's or sound, is it, she going to say it and not be believed well it almost feels <laughs> like
2: yes because remember when she didn't tell elrond and he only right. knows because he found that scroll yeah i wonder if they're going to for some reason like keep it to themselves who he is yeah which we'll see
0: it's it like and it seems kind of dark like she's hunted sauron like for all of these years and now she knows who he is but she's gonna like keep it a secret but that might be literally what they do
2: well i wonder if the reason why she keeps it a secret like the only compelling reason i could see for that would be that the shame that she feels is so great that she is has participated in in this that she can't bring herself to let people know that she is
0: part of it yeah I, I think that seems to be the story we're telling, so the, the story that they're telling. So I think that's probably a good guess. Um, but regardless, I really hope they do have Hallbrand Sauron come back to a Region and do more Rings of Power Forging. I was actually kind of disappointed how the relationship between Sauron and Celebrimbor prior to the reveal of Sauron's identity was relegated to just the last episode of the season. Really, most of the important scenes with Celebrimbor took place in episodes two and eight, and I just wish we could have gotten more meat to that plot line. Sauron's enticement of Celebrimbor and the other elves of Eregion, which in Tolkien he does by claiming to help them make Middle-earth as beautiful as Valinor, is really the inciting event of the Second Age, and it's a hugely significant part of the story. So I trust we'll get much more of that in season two. I want more dwarves. And we're definitely going to get more dwarves and dwarves accepting Rings of Power. I bet you Durin's dad's going to want one. (laughs) (laughs) We know those dwarves are going to be delving too deep. All right. Any final thoughts on Rings of Power Season 1 before we close this episode?
2: Uh, Just overall, I think uh, just I've been just so pleasantly surprised by the show. And I really uh, would specifically actually if you're one of these people, you probably haven't listened to this episode this long. But for the sake of it anyway, (laughs) um, I just really want to speak directly to those who are still like not really willing to give the show a chance because of your like fear or suspicion that it is like too modernized or too far from Tolkien's vision. From my vantage point, it seems to be close enough. So I'm really enjoying it in that way.
0: Yeah, I would just agree with that and say it captured my imagination. I mean, going through watching the series, it had me frequently going back and like rereading parts of Tolkien's works, theorizing about what would happen in the show, and just... Putting my mind to thinking regularly on these themes of sub creation and resisting temptation and redemption and courage and adventure that uh, are so integral to Tolkien's world. So I think this season accomplished what it needed to, and I'll be very excited to see the next one. Thanks so much for listening to Forefront 360. If you stayed with us this whole time, Congratulations. You're amazing. We appreciate you. You deserve a ring. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.